Welcome to Victory Church Podcast. At Victory, we are committed to connecting people to God, His church and their purpose. For more information, visit victorychurch.net.au. Now prepare your heart to hear a word from God today. Fantastic. Well, we are continuing our series this morning called Straight Out of Context. And I don't know about you, but I've really enjoyed this series. I've enjoyed putting it together. I've enjoyed working with my wife as we put it together. I've enjoyed preaching it. I've enjoyed the feedback. I've just really, really enjoyed this series. And it's called Straight Out of Context. And it's a series whereby we are looking at some of the most misused and misquoted verses in the Bible. Some of you might look at me and say, Tony, no Christian in their right mind would ever misquote the Bible, would they? I wish that was true. But sadly, more often than not, Scripture does unfortunately get misused and misquoted. And uh, we've been looking at some of the uh, verses that are misused and misquoted more than any others. In week one, we looked at the scripture that says, ask anything in my name. And we brought some context to that. In week number two, we looked at do not judge, or should I say in the King James Version, thou shalt not judge. And we looked at that in week two. And in week three, we looked at probably every other person's most favourite verse on the planet. And that is found in Jeremiah chapter 29 verse 11 that says, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you and plans to give you a hope and a future. Cha-ching. I mean, it's just everyone's favourite verse. And we looked at bringing some context to that in week three. And our series was interrupted just a little by Dr. Ray Andrews last week. And uh, that was an incredible message last week. So all of our messages are online and available to download absolutely free of charge, either on our website or on podcasts. So please, please, please make the most of that. Either listen to them again and again and again, or more importantly, use them as a tool to uh, let your family and friends, those that are unchurched, those that are not involved in a church have a listen, which would be fantastic. Today, we are looking at the root of all evil. (laughs) And by way of introduction, I want to ask you a question, and I want you to be honest. Who would put up their hands to suggest that maybe they could do with just a little bit more money? Is there anyone who's brave enough to say, yeah, I could do with just a little bit more money. And if we're really honest, just a little bit, doesn't have to be a lot, just a little bit would make my life uh, a little bit easier. I mean, is there anyone who wants to be honest, you know? And some of you might be really honest, like we had in the chapel service, and said, forget a little bit. I want a lot of money. And I think they were being the most honest of all of the people in the chapel service. So maybe you're here and say, you know, forget the little bit. I want a lot. Some of you are not putting your hands up because you think, where is he going with this? But this is not a trick question, at least not yet, maybe later on. But I think it'd be fair to say that most of us would agree with the fact that a little bit of money would make our lives just a little bit easier. And I thought there might be some who were a little bit hesitant, a little bit sceptical. And so I wanted to put it to the test. And so we got three $100 bills and we put those three $100 bills under a particular seat in this auditorium. And uh, if it's under the seat that uh, you're sitting in, you get to keep it. So you could have a look for that. And right now you're thinking, oh, I hope it's me. And they're looking and they want it. And even if you're cool and not looking, you're thinking, I'll look later. The reality is we didn't do that at all. I'm just... 
But that little leap in your heart, that little leap in your spirit suggests that maybe you're not as humble as you thought you were by not putting up your hand in the first place. Um, which leads me into today's most misquoted verse, and that is that money is the root of all evil. This is often misquoted. People say it's money is the root of all evil. In actual fact, uh, when we was in the States, we saw a, a little bit of entrepreneurial flair uh, in this photo here. It's a tip jar, and in the tip jar, it says money is the root of all evil. And then it says just under that, cleanse yourself here. Uh, I think, you know, you know, 10 out of 10 for entrepreneurial genius. And if you are going to misquote the Bible, you may as well make it work for yourself, I suppose, um, which is good. Um, but what we want to do is read this verse in its proper context. And in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, you can turn with me there or you can look up on the screen. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10 says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Everyone say, the love of money. The Bible says the love of money is a root of all the evil in the world that we see. In other words, money in and of itself is not evil. In actual fact, money is quite neutral. In church life, however, there seems to be two extremes when it comes to money. Maybe you've heard of one or if not both of these extremes. The first one is the prosperity gospel. And the prosperity gospel uh, suggests that your blessing and your wealth and your financial gain is a sign of your godliness. It's a sign of holiness. It's a sign of God's favour. So if you have more, you are more godly. That is the, uh, the prosperity gospel in a nutshell. Then we have this other extreme that's called the poverty gospel. And it says that the less you have, the more godly you are. We're not like those carnal people who have all that carnal material stuff. We have uh, separated ourselves from the world. And so as a result, we have less. And because we have less, we are more holy. We are more godly. And we are closer to God. These are two extremes. One says the more we have is a sign of our godliness. The other says the less we have is a sign of our godliness. It's little wonder people in the world say, you Christians are crazy. And the Bible does indeed contradict itself. The Bible does not contradict itself. We have a great job of taking it out of context and so confusing things. And that's why we need to have the Bible in its proper context. When it comes to interpreting the Bible correctly, so far we've learned three things. One, that we need to know and understand context. That is that we need to know who wrote the letter. We need to know to whom the letter was written. We need to understand the major theme of each particular letter. We need to know what God was trying to say through the author to the recipient. We need to understand all that. We need context. Everyone say context. The second thing we've learned over the last few weeks is that we need to interpret Scripture with other Scriptures. 
The best way to understand the Bible is with the Bible itself. In other words, we need to um, take our favourite verses and take the verses that we like and then weigh up that verse with what other verses in the Bible say about that particular verse. In order to get context, we need to interpret the Bible with the Bible. And the third thing we've learned is that we need to apply what we've learned. In other words, the Bible is not a book to be studied so much as it is a letter to be lived. Everyone say lived. Awesome. With that in mind, we need to read this verse in its proper context. And in order to do that, we need to understand who the author is. And the author of this particular letter is a man by the name of Paul. And uh, he was writing to a young man by the name of Timothy. Timothy was in ministry. He was a pastor. And he had a certain personality type. And uh, he was very timid. He was quite fearful. And so when Paul writes to Timothy, he says, do not let anyone look down upon you because you are young. So he was a young man in ministry. And so he was writing the letter to encourage him to be able to share what he needed to share with others. And he said this, he said, God did not give you a spirit of fear, but he gave you a spirit of love, power and a sound mind, Timothy. And so all this is the context of the letter. He's writing to a pastor Uh, to encourage him to live a certain way of life so that he could be an example to teach others of how they ought to live. That's the whole context of this particular letter. There are two pastoral epistles in the New Testament. One, both written by Paul. One was to Timothy, one was to Titus. Titus was unlike Timothy in that he was bold. Uh, He wasn't timid, he wasn't fearful. And so the writings are a little bit different because they were written to different people. And so to to Titus, he was bolder and stronger. So the writings are a little bit different. But Timothy was quite timid and afraid and fearful. And so Paul, in his fatherly way, was encouraging him to be able to be bold and courageous, to be able to preach the word unapologetically. And with that in mind, let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 6. And it says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into a temptation, or sorry, a trap and temptation, and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. The big theme of this particular portion of scripture is not money so much as godliness. What what Paul is trying to impress upon Timothy's heart is a godly lifestyle, not about how to get rich quick, how to fleece the people of their finance. That is not what this is about. This is about the big theme, the context is godliness. Everyone say godliness. In chapter 6, verse 6, it says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. Then the next verse, verse 7, he says, We brought nothing into this world and we can take nothing out of this world which reminds me of a story of an old man who was dying of cancer. And uh, he thought he'd get all his belongings and all the money he had, and he put it in a suitcase, and he put it in the attic, and he said, when I die, I'm going to take that with me to heaven. And uh, it wasn't long after that that the old man did indeed die of his particular disease, and his wife went upstairs into the attic to see if the briefcase was still there. And sure enough, lo and behold, the briefcase was still exactly where the old man had put it. To which the woman responded, silly old fool, he should have put it in the basement and taken it on the way down. 
That's verse 7. Verse 8 says, If we have food and clothing, we will be content. There's that word again. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Verse 6. In verse 8, food and clothing, we will be content with that. That's what the Bible says. This is how our version of the Bible goes. If we have food and clothing and the latest iPhone, I'll be content with that. And when we get the latest iPhone, we change our version and we say, if we had food and clothing and an iPhone and Netflix, we'll be content with that. And when we get all that, we change our version again and we say, yep, um, if we have food and clothing and an iPhone and Netflix and you know, I really need some new shoes and a pair of Jordans, then I will be happy There's always an and. And Paul is addressing our and. Paul is not at any time saying that having money is bad. But he is strongly suggesting it becomes a problem when money has us. In actual fact, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, it says, You cannot serve both God and money. I mean, that's pretty specific. Of all the things to bring uh, that statement down to, just two things. These are Jesus' words himself. He said, you'll either serve God or money. He didn't say God and popularity. He didn't say God and power. He didn't say God and sex. He got it down to two things, God or money. You see, for most of us, money will be the number one competitor of our heart. In short, what Paul is saying is the desire of money will deceive you and ultimately destroy you. And I want to look at these three things in more detail. Firstly, he addresses the desire that want to get rich thing that lives inside of us. The standard response this morning would possibly be, that's not me. I don't love money. But my question is, how do we discern whether or not we do, in fact, love money? And Solomon in the Old Testament answers that very question. In Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 10, he says, whoever loves money never has Enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. So Solomon is saying the way you measure whether you love money is by whether or not you're satisfied with what you have or whether you always want more, even if it's just a little bit more. You're just not satisfied with what you have and you have to have just a little bit more. If I go back to my very first question and said, who would like just a little bit more money? and our hands went up, it kind of hits home a little bit more closely than we first thought. Here's some good questions to ponder. How much more would you need to be happy? You say, I just want a little bit more, so I can be just a little bit happier. How much is just a little bit more? How much more would you need to be happy? How much more would you need to be satisfied? These are very good questions for us to ask ourselves. How much do we need to feel secure? If our answer is, well, just a little bit more, 
then we are highlighting that maybe we have an issue with the love of money more than we first gave ourselves credit for. I remember when I was a young first-year apprentice. My weekly wage as a first-year apprentice, my gross wage was $120 per week, gross. And to that I said, yeah, that's pretty gross. I mean, and I remember thinking, you know, but when I finish my apprenticeship, I'll do my four years, I'll do my dues, but when I finish my apprenticeship, I will be in the money. I'll be trained, I'll be qualified, I'll be rolling in the money because I'll be so good at what I do, I'll be making so much money, I'll be in the money. But over that four-year period, yes, my income went up incrementally over those four years, and yes, when I became a fully-fledged sign writer, it went up again, but guess what? My needs also went up. And uh, I got a car in that time, and so all of a sudden there was more money needed. And there was registration and petrol and insurances and speeding fines and more money <laughs> was needed. And by the time I finished my apprenticeship, and I got a girlfriend and, and more money was needed. <laughs> and by the time I finished my apprenticeship, I thought I didn't feel any better off. Than I was before. Where was I? Girlfriend. Girlfriend, oh yeah. That's why I lost my track of thought. Anyway. That desire in us for just a little bit more is what Paul was addressing when he was talking about this desire and love of money. And when you paint it in that light, it affects all of us more than we first thought. The love of money is a root of all kinds or all types of evil. And one of the biggest types of this evil is seen in our selfishness and our greed. Firstly, Paul looks at the desire. Secondly, he looks at the deception. He talks about people falling into a trap. The question we need to ask ourselves around this is, why do we place so much emphasis on money and why do we put our hope in our wealth? Why do we think that our life will be just a little bit better if we have just a little bit more? And I believe it's because we are deceived into believing the lie about money. Because lie promises happiness. We think if I could just have that iPhone, I'll be happy. If I could just have the new house, I'll be happy. It's a bit small with the one I'm in right now, but I know with a bit of extra room and the kids to have a bit of distance and space, they wouldn't fight so much anymore. And so we, we need this. It's going to make our life a lot better. We're going to be more happy. It promises, but does not deliver. It promises happiness, but does not deliver. It promises security. That when, when I pay off all my bills and I pay off my credit card, then I have security. If I have enough pension, I have security. But it doesn't deliver. It promises significance. And we think, if I had a new car, then people would take me seriously. No, no, if I had a two-story house instead of a single-story house, then people would take me more seriously. I would have arrived. It promises happiness, security, significance, but it doesn't deliver on those things. See, money promises what only God can provide. Money cannot meet our deepest needs. Only Jesus can. 
If money could meet our deepest needs, Jesus wouldn't have sent his son. He would have sent cash. Just thought about that. But he sent his son because our deepest need is not found in money. When you have more of Jesus, you can be tent with what you've got. More of him leads to less cravings of other things. The difference is you may have something, but you don't have to have it. That's what Jesus will do for you. You don't have to have it. In Psalm 23 verse 1, it says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And we've misinterpreted that. We think if we have Jesus, he will give us everything we want, so we won't have any want anymore. That's not what it means. It means the want, the longing, and the desires that we used to have, he takes them away. And what I used to want, I don't want anymore. What I used to desire, I don't desire anymore. I, I trust there are some believers here this morning who have been following Jesus long enough to be able to say, yes, that's true for me. Who can say, I remember really seeking after something, but when I met Jesus, that desire, sometimes instantaneously, other times over a period of time, lessened and lessened to the point, I don't care about it anymore. The Lord is my shepherd. I don't want the things I used to want. I remember as a young man, I used to joke that I want to play uh, for Manchester United. The reality is I wasn't good enough. But, you know, when you're, when you're young, you're deceived and deluded. But I did love soccer. And there was a period in my life when I was very early representing the state team. I was playing soccer seven days a week. And I just loved it. I could not get enough of soccer. And I love, love, love soccer. And I, I'm not against sport. And I'm not against the sport of soccer. I still love soccer. I'll go watch it. I really enjoy it. It is the real football. Sorry for all you AFL people out there. But... The reality is this desire to play soccer as much as I was just lifted. And my desires changed. And whereas I used to love playing soccer, it went from love playing soccer to I just love being in church. Love being with other believers. I love my youth group. I love, I love spending time with young kids and investing in their lives. The difference is I may have it, but I don't have to have it. What we do have to have is an assurance in Christ and joy, security and significance will be your reward. So Paul looks at desire, he looks at the deception and then he addresses the destruction. He says people have been plunged into ruin. Some have even wandered from the faith. They've pierced themselves with many griefs and honestly, I've been in ministry long enough and maybe you've been around long enough to say that yes, that is sadly true. There are so many people that I've seen come and go. And in their going, they've pierced themselves with many griefs. And it started with a good godly intention. I want to earn more so I can give more. And what pastor doesn't want to hear that? But the reality of that coming to fruition, unfortunately, is so few and so far between. So many in chasing wealth have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Discontentment makes rich people poor, but contentment makes anybody rich. The richest are not those that have the most, but those that need the least. And I don't know if you've ever had the privilege of traveling the world and getting into a third world context. I have had that privilege on numerous occasions. 
been to Mongolia, I've been into the Philippines and different parts of Asia, uh, I've been to Africa, and I, I've seen poverty. And what I will say for every poverty in stricken place that I've been to, for the most part, I've seen incredible joy. What they can do with dirt and a rock will blow your minds. Right now, we have a team that have gone to a village called Kalawasi in Indonesia. And they are going there with their goodies to bless this community, to bless this little village because of its poverty and because of what it needs. But this I know, every one of those who have gone away will come back changed. And if you get the privilege to talk to them, they will probably say that this village helped them more than we helped the village. It never ceases to amaze me that those that have the least seem to be some of the most richest people on the planet. Discontentment can make a rich person poor and contentment can make a poor person rich. Paul is very clear. The desire for money will deceive you and ultimately destroy you. Lastly, Paul leaves us with his decision on the matter. A decision is a conclusion or resolution reached after careful consideration. And his decision on the matter is found in verse 17. So for the decision, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17 to 19 says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Paul's advice to this young pastor named Timothy is very clear. This is his decision on the matter. When it comes to money, he says in verse 17, command those that are rich. We often read over that for the one reason that we don't think the Bible is talking to us because we don't consider ourselves rich. And so we think, we're, we're, you know, I hope those rich people are listening now. He, he's not talking to me. He's talking to those rich people. And our definition of rich is anyone who's got more than me, which is actually jealousy, <laughs> more than anything else. He says, command those that are rich. We do not have the luxury to read this in our context. We have to read it with a global context. We have to read it with the world in mind, not your world in mind. The average person in Australia, and this would be true for most of us here today, has hundreds of dollars of technology in their pocket. Many of you came today with hundreds of dollars in your pocket of technology. And most of you got here because of thousands of dollars of technology. It's called a motor vehicle. And if you own a motor vehicle, in the context of the world, you are in the top 9% of the richest people in the world. 
when I said that in the chapel service, someone said, oh, mine's an old car. If you own an old car, you are still in the top 9% of all the people in the world. If you have access to running water, if you have access to food and shelter and you have clothes on your back, you are in the top 5% of the richest people in the world. You're not poor. You and I are rich. We are extremely rich. And so this verse applies to us. We are blessed, we are wealthy, and we are rich. And can I just say that that is not a bad thing. You do not need to feel bad about that which God has given you because it's God Himself who gives us that ability to produce wealth. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 18, it says, Remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you the ability to produce wealth. Wealth. So we don't need to apologise for our blessing, but we do need to maximise our blessing. We don't apologise for it, but we do need to maximise our blessing. You know, when it comes to money, we get a little bit funny, but we shouldn't apologise for that which God has blessed us with. If you've been blessed with a good family and a great family or a great marriage, someone might say to you, oh, you've got a great wife. I'm not going to say, no, I don't. Imagine that. Your kids are so well behaved. They are great kids. No, they're not. I feel awkward. I feel embarrassed. No, no, no. We don't apologise for that. We say thank you. Yeah. We, we say thank you. Thank you for your compliment about my wife. If we have a nice home, we, we don't, we don't apologise for those things. And nor should we apologise for the wealth or the riches that we have. But we do need to maximise that which God has given us. We need a right perspective so we can leverage what God has given to us. What Paul essentially is saying about our money, our wealth and our riches is this. Your money, your wealth and your riches is not just for you. That's what he's saying. When we keep it just for us, that's us displaying the love of money. And so having money is not the problem. The problem is when money has us. And so Paul has put a little test to each and every one of us who are rich to find out where our desires and loyalty lie. And he says, your money is not for you, but in verses 18 and 19, it says it's a tool. Money is not evil, money is a tool. Everyone say tool. It's a tool to do good. See, if I had $20 here in my hand, I don't. I should have thought of this earlier. But if I had $20 in my hand, it's a tool. And with it, I can do good or I can do evil. I can do good and give it away. I can do harm and buy drugs. The same money can do good or evil. It takes on the personality of its owner. Money takes on the personality of its owner. Whatever you are, your money will become. Whatever's in you is what will happen to your money. Whatever you're in love with, whatever you're addicted to, that money will be used for. If you're addicted to drugs, that money will be used for drugs. If you love God, it will be used for God. 
Paul says to Timothy as a young, timid pastor, knowing that one of the toughest subjects you're ever going to touch as a pastor, Timothy, is money. And I want you to tell the people to command them to do good. Don't tell them. Don't suggest to them in some timid, wishy-washy, namby-pamby way. Stand up like a man. God has not given you a spirit of fear. He's given you a spirit of love, power, and sound mind. Stand in your God-given authority and command the people to do good. To be rich in good deeds. To be generous on every occasion. Come on, Timothy. You're a soldier in the army of God. Stand up, man. I love it. He says, be generous. He says, and then they'll find life. Life that is truly life. Remember that line in Braveheart? He says, all men, all men die, but not all men really live. We're all going to die. Every one of us is going to die. How encouraging is that this morning? Turn to the person next to you and say, you're going to die. The truth is we're all going to die. But not all men or all women really live. Paul knew he was dying. He knew Timothy was going to die. He knew his congregation was going to die. He said, come on, give them the message that's going to cause them to truly live. We don't know how long we've got here on planet Earth. But let's make it count. Let's make, it, make a difference in the world in which God has placed us. He's effectively saying the only antidote in the world for the love of money is not more money. But the only antidote in the world for the love of money is generosity. The only way you can break the grip of materialism in your life is through generosity. It's through giving. That's why the Bible says it is more blessed to give than receive. If you want to be free from the love of money, if you want to be free from being consumed, and can I say this? Being guilty and gripped by the love of money doesn't mean you have to have a lot of money to be gripped with the love of money. In actual fact, I know poor people. I know people who, are, who, are, who have a lot less than I do, who are far more consumed with money than I am. It's all they talk about. It's all they think about. And if you want that desire in you to be dealt with, the Bible tells us there's only one way. And it's through being generous. Everyone say generous. And that's what I believe in the tithe. I believe in taking the first fruit of our salary. Because whatever you do first is what matters most. And that's why I believe in the principle of tithing. I don't believe tithing is an Old Testament thing or a New Testament thing. I believe it's a God thing. I believe it's an eternal thing. I believe in the principle of sowing and reaping. Tithing is one of the most effective tools for spiritual growth. If I said to you, who wants to grow this year? 2016, a year of growth. There's nothing going to test you or grow you more than you parting with your finance. Because in this life, you'll either serve God or money. And so tithing is that measurable moment every week or every fortnight, or every month, whatever it is that you get paid, 
And this country is so blessed and so rich, you don't even have to work to get paid. We have a government and a system in place that you can get paid for not working. I've been to nations where they work 16 hours a day and don't get what we get for doing nothing. We are rich. So I don't get much on the dole. No, no, you get the dole. You're rich. You're blessed. And you might say, I don't have much to give. And you're thinking dollars and cents. You have a lot of time. If you're being paid not to go to work, you have time. You say, but I'm crippled, I can't get out. You have a mind. You can research and you can write. You can give back. The only way to break free from the grip of materialism and the love of money is through giving, being generous, being rich in good works. That's what I believe in tithing. And can I just say, for me, tithing is not giving. Tithing is bringing. In Malachi, it says, bring the tithe. You're not giving. It's something that's a test to each and every one of us to see where our loyalties lie, to see where our heart lies, to see if we're going to rob God. So you can't rob God if it belongs to you. But that tithe belongs to God. It'd be like me borrowing a book from the library and I hear this message today and I'm sitting there thinking, man, I've got to be generous. Tony's right. So we grab the book we've borrowed from the library and we, I'm going to be generous. I'm going to take it back to the library. Am I giving or am I bringing? I'm bringing. I haven't given anything. That book did not cost me one thing. If I wanted to be generous, I would grab one of my books and say, to make up for my overdue return on that book, I'm going to give them another book. And that's what I believe generosity comes in. It's something over and above the tithe. I'm passionate about this. It's something I've modelled for three decades. I believe in it. It served us well. Not that we do it for that purpose. Not that we do it for that reason. But we do it, one, because it's a biblical principle. But two, we do it to be a blessing to others. And that's why we want to reach our community. And we want to reach our world. The village of Kalawasi and other projects we have on the go. We want to be able to do that. But we're never going to be able to do it by being a selfish, greedy people. Which one of the biggest manifestations of the kinds of evil that the love of money displays. You want to know what the love of money looks like? It looks like greed and selfishness. Will you stand with me this morning? Thank you for taking the time to listen. If you have any questions, please email us at admin at victorychurch.net.au.